Throughout this episode, you'll hear occasional dynamically placed advertisements as well as host-read ads by me promoting the work of my sponsors, similar to what you'd experience when you're binging your favorite YouTube content. If you find the ads disruptive, consider joining my community on Patreon. Premium submarines receive full-length ad-free episodes, hundreds of hours of bonus content, and the ability to connect and chat with other listeners. To learn more, visit patreon.com slash backfromtheborderline. Hi, Molly. My name's Lauren. I'm 23 and I'm from Michigan. I just wanted to say thank you so much. Um, Thank you kind of seems insufficient, but I cannot describe to you the power of your podcast and the impact that it has had on both my partner and I's lives. Um, We started dating in June of 2022 and shortly after started having you know, some of these issues that you talk about. And without your podcast, I I truly don't know where we would be. And I'm just, I'm very thankful. So I just wanted to let you know. Thank you so much. Hi, Molly. It's Nadi from Austin. And I'm a premium submarine. Thank you so much for this podcast. I feel like it's saving my life. Thank you, Molly. Welcome to Back from the Borderline. And I don't want to talk to your personality, I want to talk to your soul. The idea of alchemy is to reduce something with fire, burning it down so that something new can rise from the ashes. You can do this with your personality too. You can perform emotional alchemy. You've always had the power, you just didn't know that. And now you do. Here on Back From The Borderline, this is a place for you to unhook from your overextended life to explore, understand, and integrate the darkest parts of your soul. On this podcast, there's no finish line, no quick fix or cure. There is only eternal unfolding. More than 50% of us will be diagnosed with a mental illness at some point in our lifetime, Many of my listeners identify with various psychiatric labels like BPD, bipolar, CPTSD, ADHD, ASD, the list goes on. The medical model of mental illness tries to convince us that the root of our suffering is due to chemical imbalances in our brains, and that the best we can hope for is to numb or suppress the symptoms of these disorders, dysfunctions, and imbalances into remission. The definition of savior is one that saves from danger or destruction. Here on this podcast, I ask you to think, what if we viewed our symptoms as saviors? Through this lens, we can begin to see painful mental health symptoms as natural responses that we can learn to become fully conscious of and slowly change. On this podcast, you'll learn to view your symptoms as saviors as alerts from your body, mind, and spirit that want to let you know when you're out of alignment with the deepest yearnings of your soul. From chaos comes clarity. Through working and integrating the concepts we'll explore together on this podcast, you will emerge transformed, standing in the ashes of the person you used to be. Thank you so much to Lauren and Nadina for your lovely voicemails. If you'd like to hear your voice on the podcast, you can do that by visiting my website at backfromtheborderline.com. 
Also, big shout out to Nadina, who is a premium submarine. These are my premium subscribers of the podcast who get access to over 110 hours of bonus content, as well as a monthly newsletter and access to our beautiful Patreon community. So if that sounds interesting to you, you can learn more about that. The link in the episode description. Today's episode topic was inspired by this voicemail from listener Beryl. Let's hear what she had to say. Hey Molly, um, it's Beryl. I'm 20 and I'm from Houston. I wanted to come on here and thank you, first of all, for being you and being so awesome and being the big sister for so many of us that we've never had uh, and creating this community of hypersensitive people. Um, Thank you so much. Uh, Also, your podcast on codependency I listened to uh, recently, and I just wanted to tell you that I have always had issues ever since I was little with expression, like art or music or whatever it may be, just creating things, which is such an outlet for people, for anyone, but for anyone's emotions. And when you have such strong emotions, I feel like it's really important to have that in your life. And I've never really had that outlet because every time I create something or like even play a song, I just have always felt like embarrassed and like I just want to disappear and I never want anyone to hear me um, because I just feel like so worthless. And listening to your podcast on codependency, I realized that the issue was that I was looking for acceptance outside of myself and always feeling like I needed someone else to tell me that I was good for what I was doing. And now I have started just enjoying music, just even if it sounds like crap, you know, like I just love it now because I realize that I can always tell myself that it sounds good or that just that it's fun. So thank you so much for that. Okay, bye. Okay, bye. Beryl. (laughs) I love that. I never know how to sign off a voice notes or voicemails or anything like that. And I always find myself being like, and over and out. I never know how to just like tie things up. (laughs) So the end of that voicemail really cracked me up. But Beryl, thank you so much for this voicemail. I'm really happy that you enjoyed the codependency episode. But buried in this voicemail was a topic I've been meaning to address for a while, but as soon as I received this from Beryl, I thought, ah, now is the time for me to do an episode on approval addiction. How many of us find ourselves addicted to approval from our managers, our friends, maybe our partner, and we can't drop this nagging insecurity we feel until we get that approval and as soon as someone gives us that validation that we're looking for we immediately feel better but as Beryl said in her voicemail we can't feel good about something we're doing until it's approved of by others and how often have you left a situation feeling disappointed maybe after accomplishing a really difficult project, hoping for praise, but receiving nothing in return. I remember even as early as being 10 or 12 years old, where if my parents would leave the house, I would 
clean the whole house to the best of my ability, as good as a 10 or 12 year old can clean the house to the best of my ability. And if my parents didn't give me an incredible amount of praise when they walked in the door, I would feel so disappointed. Think about when someone has a request for you, maybe your manager with a new project, a friend who needs help moving. How often are you saying yes before thinking it through? If it's something that you want to actually take on, do you just jump to immediately saying yes and then feel this shame and guilt spiral afterwards and a little bit of lingering resentment and passive aggression because you didn't really want to do it, but you feel like you had to? How likely are you to say yes when you actually want to say no? If you feel pressure to say yes all the time, there's a high likelihood that you're living with a level of something we can call approval addiction. And this isn't something to obsessively Google and say, how do I treat my approval addiction? It's just, it's not a disorder. It's not a dysfunction. It's just something to be aware of if you have a tendency towards doing this. And I certainly do and have a lot in my life. When you struggle with approval addiction, you want to be liked, or at the very least, you don't want to be rejected or misunderstood, which is normal, right? So you make yourself constantly available to help, you're generous with your resources, and maybe even you're rarely seen without the smile on your face. You want to be the go-to person. And people might come to you for advice because you are the ultimate giver. But here's the thing about generosity. The more you give, the more it takes out of you. And soon you might feel overworked, exhausted. And as I mentioned before, maybe even a bit passive aggressive because you feel like I do so much for everyone, but no one gives back to me in the way that I give to them. And if you know anything about this podcast, If you are a new listener, hello, welcome. But if you are a returning listener, you know I'm not about making things black and white or good or bad. It's not all bad to want to be liked. If you are someone who really wants to be liked, you're probably agreeable, very empathetic, and you are willing to go the extra mile without being asked. Maybe if you're at work, you are the person that holds the company together And people really mean it when they say, where would I be without you? You are a valuable person, friend, coworker. But as we talk about on this podcast, our greatest strengths can also prove to be really powerful weaknesses if we're not conscious of our tendencies. And this is where there is a shadow side to everything. Some people need drugs and alcohol. And others feel just as desperate for people's approval. It's like, give me the drug. (laughs) The desire for approval creates the temptation to agree with almost everything that people ask of you in the name of securing their affirmation and getting them to like you. It really is a compulsion. It can feel like a drug addiction. So let's talk about what approval addiction actually is. We're going to go to the definition. 
Our human need for bonding sometimes goes a little haywire. As I mentioned before, we are hardwired to want the approval of others because we survive in relationship with others. This is an evolutionary trait. But just as with any trait, it can go from being adaptive to maladaptive pretty quickly. It's a fine line. So when we continually look to others for approval, even to the point of being addicted to what other people think of us, approval addiction is defined as an intense desire to win the approval of those around you and avoid feelings of rejection and abandonment at all cost. We become addicted to approval when we base our entire self-worth on how people treat us or on what we believe they think about us. Now, someone who struggles with approval addiction is not just your average run-of-the-mill agreeable person. Many people are kind, easygoing, and agreeable, and people with healthy self-esteem still know themselves and they're in touch with their own values, their own wants, and their own needs. They may just not have a strong opinion one way or another. But on the other hand, approval addicts are primarily concerned with other people's opinions of them and they will stifle their own needs and opinions in order to gain or keep the approval of others. And the issue with approval addiction is that saying no makes you anxious because you have a fear of being rejected or not being liked, even if saying no is what you know to be true for you. And it's this split, right, of saying yes when you really mean no that creates this low-level anxiety that ultimately leads to other effects in our life. This can look like poor time management skills, avoidant behaviors at home or work, and a life that is fueled by fear and anxiety. And this type of lifestyle isn't sustainable or fulfilling. And if you struggle with an addiction to approval or validation from other people and don't have a grounded sense of self-esteem for yourself, you can understand how that is because it feels like you're just constantly jumping through hoops. You don't know what it is you really want or you really like because you've spent so much of your life trying to present or perform the version of yourself you think you should be to win the approval of other people. And this can feel like a very empty, sad, stressful and an anxiety induced existence, which I can really, really relate to. It's something I've struggled deeply with. Approval addiction looks like living in bondage to what other people think about us. And when you become an addict to approval, no matter how much of this drug of choice you get, no matter how much approval you get, you can never have enough. It never proves to you that you are lovable and worthy. So it feels like you're just constantly striving for more, begging for crumbs of validation and love. It's very, very stressful. You have to have more and more and more fixes of approval and validation. And just like other addicts, you can feel like you're losing your grasp on life itself when this drug of choice is withheld from you. So you might be asking yourself now, what's the remedy 
to approval addiction. We're going to dive more deeply into this in the episode, but overall it's learning to say no and saying no early, often, and with confidence. And you might believe that saying no closes a door, but in reality, it is what will free you from your fears and anxieties around rejection. No is an incredibly powerful word, but only if you use it with confidence. And I know this is easier said than done, but this is the reality. Ryan Holiday, who is the creator of the Daily Stoic YouTube channel, highly recommend you check out his work. He said something really powerful. He said, every time you say yes to something, you say no to something else. And every time you say no to something, you're saying yes to something else. Ryan gave the example of having an opportunity to speak at a conference and he was already overworked and burnt out and he hadn't been able to spend much time with his family. And he was really scared that if he would turn down this opportunity to speak that maybe he would never have another opportunity again or he had to say yes. He felt bad letting down the organizers of this event. I'm paraphrasing here. But he decided to say no. And when he said no, he realized that he was able to spend a beautiful weekend with his family. He was able to dedicate that extra time that he maybe would have been preparing for this event to working on a book he was writing at the time. And he said that he realized by saying no, he was saying yes to so much more. By saying no to these event organizers, he was saying yes to his family, yes to himself. And I think that's a really powerful thing to keep in mind. No doesn't always mean no, it's saying no to something so that you can say yes to yourself. I want to read you a short snippet of an article by a man named Matt Russell, and it was just posted on a forum that I found about codependent recovery and approval addiction and identity, and I thought it was really powerful. So let's read what Matt says. He said, After I experienced some sobriety from my primary addiction, so he clearly was struggling with substance addiction, it became clear that there were a lot of other processes that I was addicted to, ways of thinking and acting that fed my main addiction. One of those sub-addictions ran deep underneath the radar of my life. It has nothing to do with chemical dependency or substance abuse. There are no 12-step groups to help people fight it. There are no treatment centers to help us escape it. But for a lot of us, it creates relational, spiritual, and social havoc in our lives. This particular addiction is what might be called approval addiction. My personal experience with approval addiction began early. When I was in elementary school, I used to talk a lot. For folks that know me, that will be a real shocker. There were all these rules about being quiet and studying and listening that I had a difficult time with. I found the little folks around me fascinating, and so I would talk to them all the time. My second grade teacher was not impressed by my social skills. Over time, it became obvious that she had her favorites, and I wasn't one of them. I tried to make her like me, but it was useless. One day, I was particularly fascinated by the folks around me, so she pulled me out of class and spanked me. The next day, I was determined to do better, 
By the end of the day, she asked me to come forward and she pinned a note on my shirt and told me to make sure that it got to my mother. I just knew that it was going to be a glowing report of how much progress I had made in that eight hour period. I was sure that the note was going to enumerate how all the years of teaching she had never seen turn around so inspirational or dramatic. That's not what happened. When I got home, I stuck my chest out and told my mom that I got a note from my teacher. I was confident. I was proud. I knew I was loved. As my mom read the note and as her countenance fell, so did mine. The note said that I was a very bad boy and I went on to inventory all of my seven-year-old character defects, which from the length of time it took my mother to read the note was pretty long. That's the first time I remember feeling significantly criticized and it crushed me. It took all of the air out of my sails. This sense of shame bubbled up from the bottom and it made me feel small and insignificant. Criticism still does that to me. I could think that there was a part of me that day that determined never to feel that way again, to distance myself, to people please, to manipulate and lie, but to never feel that way again. In a lot of ways, the structure and my life of addiction served to numb me from the shame of letting people down. Today, I can see the insanity of this logic, doing shameful things to numb my shame. But it made all the sense in the world to me at the time. Those of us who struggle with this often have no capacity to hear criticism. We hide from it, balk at it, internalize it, and strike back at the originators of it. When other people's opinions of me becomes the organizing principle of my life, my entire identity is on the line. What happens is that I end up giving people access to my identity that should not have that access. I become what other people think of me. Whether I'm a student, a business person, a stay-at-home mom, a professional, unemployed, whether I'm a recovering addict, a Christian, a Jew, a Democrat, a Republican, successful or unsuccessful, it doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is how I'm perceived by the world. If being busy is important, then I must be busy. If having money is a sign of real freedom, then I must claim my money. If knowing people proves my importance, I'll have to work my contacts and climb the ladders. What matters more than anything else is how I am perceived by my world. I wanted to read this snippet to you because I feel like it was incredibly powerful to get us in the mindset of our childhood. I want you to close your eyes if it is safe to do so right now. If you're driving or something like that, it goes without saying don't close your eyes, so just do it with your eyes open, but close your eyes and try to think of a time that you remember first feeling most criticized for who you are. And even better, if you can think of a time where you really thought you were living your truth, you were really proud of yourself and you received some criticism or maybe a joke was made about you and you felt that first stab of shame. And maybe something in you died that day. And maybe that's when you started performing and feeling like in order to no longer feel those feelings of shame and criticism for your true self, you decided you would protect yourself from that feeling and no one would be able to make you feel that way again. Can you remember a moment like that? 
I think a lot of us can. I know I can. This is where approval addiction is born. And if we don't become conscious of it, it can take over our entire lives and our entire identities. Next, I want to talk about signs of approval addiction. And as I read through these, I want you to think, does this sound like something that's familiar in your own life? And because we're all unique and we all experience these things in very different ways, there might just be echoes of truth in what I share, but it's still helpful to hear this and really start wondering, is this me? And if it is, I really want you to focus on not shaming yourself, but becoming conscious. We're shining light on things within you that maybe were in the dark before. And there is such a beauty of that aha moment when you realize that, ah, this might be keeping me stuck. So signs of approval addiction can include struggling to form your own opinions. Maybe you freeze up or feel anxious when someone asks your opinion because you don't want to risk upsetting or offending people. You might not even know what you think because you're so focused on pleasing other people. So instead of looking inward and asking yourself what you really think or you really want, you're too busy trying to figure out what others want you to say in order to be liked. Another way that we can display approval addiction is when we have trouble saying no. And as I already described at the beginning of the podcast, when you are addicted to approval, saying no can actually feel really terrifying. And if you're someone who doesn't struggle with approval addiction, it might just sound crazy, right? Like how could someone not say no? Well, it's very, very common. Those of us who struggle with approval addiction, we can find that it's easier to say yes to things that we don't want to do rather than facing the fear of someone being mad at us or destroying the vision of what this person has of us in their mind. It reminds me of when you lie, right? You have to tell more and more and more lies and soon this fictional version of yourself that you have portrayed to other people, you've always said yes to all of these things. And then one day, maybe you snap and you realize you hate everything that you've said yes to. And this is something that we have to recognize we have control over. But if you are living this life where you're just saying yes, and you're more afraid of people not liking you than being true to yourself, it can be a really scary house of cards and it can lead to feeling like you're trapped in a life that you never really wanted. So another way that we can show signs of approval addiction is that old phrase like going along to get along. Approval addiction can cause you to just go along with whatever people want, even if it doesn't work for you. You'd rather just go along with anything than rock the boat. And this can put you in really unpleasant, risky, or even dangerous situations at worst. And at best, it can just make you feel empty. And like I said before, a little passive aggressive. And eventually those things build up. There's a saying called death by a thousand cuts. And that comes to mind here. 
Another thing that you might do when you struggle with approval addiction is over-apologizing. I'm raising my hand right now because this is something I am absolutely still guilty of and working on. Now, if you're always apologizing, even when you've done nothing wrong, it's likely that you're so preoccupied with the idea of offending someone that you might even apologize when you bump into a door frame or a piece of furniture, right? Like little things like, oh, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> Another thing that might happen, a little bit of an after effect of an approval addiction struggle is when you have low self-esteem. When we're addicted to the approval and validation of other people, it means that our entire self-esteem is dependent upon the approval of other people. And often we don't have our own inner sense of self-worth and this results in low self-esteem. And when other people are mad at you or disapprove of you, it can actually feel devastating if you're an approval addict because it feels like the entire value that you have is at risk. Because think about it. If all you care about is other people liking you, if people don't like you, that's devastating because the one thing you care about has been put at risk, as we said before. This is why you have some people who have very healthy sense of self-esteem where they can have critics writing horrible things about them, people hating them, and they still say, you know, I have intrinsic value and I'm not going to let what other people think about me impact me. And for those of us who struggle with approval addiction, we look at people like that and are just in awe because we can't even imagine being able to still feel okay inside if people are mad at us, disapproving of us, or somehow calling us out. Another thing you might struggle with if you are battling approval addiction is constantly putting others' needs above your own. So if this is something that you tend to do, it's likely that the most important thing to you is that other people are happy and don't think negatively of you so you'll ignore or minimize your own needs so that the needs of others can be met. And this is very much like a martyr complex. And the thing about people that tend to do this, and I'm again calling myself out here because I have a tendency to do this and I have to be very aware of it. It can feel very valiant to say, oh, it doesn't matter what I need. I care more about what you think. But if you continue to do this, no matter what, inside you're going to develop this sense of passive aggressiveness, this resentment, and it will come back to bite you. And I'm sure that you felt that because inside you're spinning out instead of just stating what you need and what you want. It's a powerful thing to bring to any interaction and there's nothing wrong with stating your needs because you deserve to get your needs met. And it goes without saying that something else that people that struggle with approval addiction might face is this constant underlying anxiety about what other people think of us. So you might find yourself worrying or even obsessing about how others perceive you, whether they're mad at you or whether or not they like you or think that you fit in. And if this is severe enough, that it impacts your mental health, your ability to function in your life or your relationships, 
This means that this is something you really need to address because this is when something that's adaptive, as I mentioned before, it's totally fine to care about what people think of you. We have to live and grow in relationship to others, but when it overtakes your entire life, that means that it's become maladaptive. There is an imbalance that likely needs to be corrected because if we don't give a flying fuck what people think about us, then that's the other side of the spectrum, right? And if we're thinking about a spectrum here with the approval addiction side being all we care about is what other people think. And then someone on the complete other side where it's like, I don't give a shit what people think about me. Screw everyone. You don't really want to be on either of those sides of the spectrum. You want to be somewhere in the middle where you have a healthy respect and care for how other people think and feel, but your sense of self and identity and self-esteem is not going to be rocked by the opinion of one person. Now, here's another one. Those of us who struggle with approval addiction, we struggle with attempts to control other people. And this might surprise you because if you have been nodding your head along up to this point and you're like, I'm not controlling, you might not think of yourself as controlling, but approval addicts will often try to control other people, their thoughts and their emotions in order to gain approval. And I want to make very clear that oftentimes this isn't a conscious behavior. It's not like you are an evil genius trying to manipulate people. Controlling tendencies actually play out more often subconsciously. And if you identify with codependency, the attempting to control others is actually one of the four core elements of being codependent, which is closely linked with approval addiction. This one was one of the hardest things for me to face up to within myself. I didn't want to think about myself as a controlling person. But when I looked back in my life and how a lot of relationships played out and ended, I could see this connective tissue of my engagements with other people. And while it brought up a lot of shame and guilt and regret and frustration with myself, I allow myself grace, but I also want to realistically look at my behaviors and I had to understand that I do have a tendency to try to be controlling of other people to win their approval. Now, something you might struggle with if you are an approval addict is trying to present yourself in the best possible light. So this can look like only disclosing things about yourself that you feel will be viewed positively and maybe trying to hide or minimize things that you fear others might judge you negatively for or not like. And then lastly, the, I would say, main underlying root of approval addiction is a terror of rejection. If you are addicted to approval, it means that you tend to rely on other people's opinions for your own self-worth. So being rejected or even the perception of feeling rejected is one of the scariest things that can happen to us when we're addicted to approval. And learning how to deal with rejection is really difficult, but it is absolutely necessary if you want to stop being an approval addict. So I want to ask you a few questions right now, and I'm going to pause 
after each one of them so that you can reflect and really let your intuitive nature answer these questions, whatever comes up, and reflect. Do I value others' opinions or approval over mine before making important decisions? If I think I've done a great job at something, but the person I'd like approval from devalues or criticizes it, does it lower my sense of satisfaction or self-esteem? Have I ever stopped moving forward on something I wanted to do because I didn't receive the reaction I had hoped for? So if you answered yes to any of these, it's likely it's time for you to do some soul searching about your need for approval. Next, I want to read an article by Lori Desheen that's called Confessions and Lessons from a Former Approval Addict from tinybuddha.com. I love this website. I love the articles posted here. So she writes, I'm short. I'm stumpy. My nose looks like a pig's. My inner thighs touch when I walk. My gums show too much when I talk. I have to change the way I look. Maybe then you'll like me. I obsess. I overanalyze. I get caught up in my head. I dwell on things that I should let go. I can never simply go with the flow. I have to learn to be laid back. Maybe then you'll like me. I'm shy. I'm anxious. I'm dependent on reassurance. I ask for advice way too much. I look for validation as a crutch. I have to be more confident. Maybe then you'll like me. Day in, day out, plodding away. That's how I spent my life. I didn't like who I was, so I hoped you'd do it for me. If only you'd tell me I was okay. If only you'd confirm that I didn't have to change. If only you'd give me permission to be myself. Then maybe I would like me. It's what led to more than a decade of self-torture. I'd cut myself to feel relief and create a physical representation of the pain I feared no one else could see. I would stuff myself with food to the point of bursting, then hide myself away to purge it up to 13 times a day. I'd curl up in my bed and cry for hours, hoping maybe my tears would wash away the most offensive parts of me. I remember once when I was in a residential treatment center for bulimia, an art therapist asked me to draw a self-portrait. I drew a bag of vomit with me curled up inside. That's how I saw myself. I know why I grew into this needy, insecure person. I can trace the moments that, bit by bit, eroded my self-esteem and caused me to question my own worth. But it doesn't really matter why I learned to feel so small and insignificant. What matters is how I learned to tame the fears that once imprisoned me. Notice I wrote tame, not destroy. For some of us, the fearful thinking never fully goes away. I've never seen myself as a before and after picture because it's never felt black and white to me. There wasn't a distinct turning point when my life went from painfully dark to light. It's been a slow but steady process of cleaning layers of grime from the lens through which I view myself, and sometimes, just after chipping away a massive piece of dirt, I catch a splash of mud in the spot that was briefly pristine. I live day in and day out in a messy mind that despite my best efforts has never been fully polished. 
but it's far clearer now than it once was, and I have the tools to clean it a little every day, and to accept the times when I simply must embrace that it's still dirty. Perhaps you can relate to that lost, lonely, younger me, desperately seeking approval. Or perhaps you've come a long way, but you still struggle with confidence every now and then. Maybe you sometimes feel like a fraud because you're human and imperfect. Maybe you still want to fit in and belong. Who doesn't? We're social creatures and we're wired to seek community. But there's a difference between looking for connection and looking for permission to be. There's a difference between depending on people for support and depending on them for self-esteem. Here's what helped me shift from seeking praise and approval to knowing that I deserve love and support. Become aware of the layers of grime on your lens. You may see yourself as someone else once saw you years ago when you were too young and impressionable to realize that they weren't viewing you clearly. Or perhaps your grime built up later in life when people close to you projected their own issues onto you and convinced you that you were somehow lacking. Most likely, a combination of both led you to form a harsh, critical view of yourself, backed up by caked-on beliefs reinforced through consistent self-critical thoughts. Understand that much like those other people, you're not seeing yourself clearly or fairly. You may see small mistakes as evidence that you're unworthy. You may interpret your challenges as proof that you are incompetent. Neither of these things is true, and you don't have to believe them. Learn how to clean your lens daily. While I wish I could say I know how to power wash that lens, I've yet to discover such a process, but I can tell you how I've slowly chipped away at the mud. First, change your beliefs. Once you identify a limiting belief, such as I'm not lovable, you can start to change it by looking for evidence to support the opposite belief. Once upon a time, I believed I was ugly. I truly believed my face was offensive when not covered in makeup because I have light features. I know where this belief came from. When I was a kid, someone told me light-skinned blondes are homely. And by that, I don't know if you're familiar with that word, but homely basically means ugly. Because this person valued physical appearance and I desperately wanted them to accept me, I started caking on layers of paint on my face. Over the years, I've met people with varied looks who I found to be incredibly beautiful and it had nothing to do with the color of their skin, eyebrows, or eyes. It had to do with the light in their eyes and the joy behind their smile. I too possess the capacity to shine from within and exude joy. More importantly, I feel good about myself when I access my inner spark and how I feel about myself matters far more than what I look like. Next, challenge your thoughts. While you can identify evidence to support a new belief, it's likely that you'll get stuck in ingrained thought patterns from time to time. It's a process, not a one-time choice. My mind will occasionally formulate reasons that I'm not good enough. You aren't where you should be professionally. You didn't respond to that conflict wisely. You reacted too emotionally. As often as I can, I catch these thoughts and challenge them with compassion. There's nowhere you should be professionally, 
and you've done a lot more than you give yourself credit for. Yes, you could have responded better to that conflict, but that's okay. This is an opportunity for growth. Yes, you reacted emotionally, but that's okay too. You're not a robot. And at least you're self-aware enough to recognize when there's room for improvement. You may not catch every self-critical thought, but over time, you'll catch more and more of them and tiny bits of progress will start to add up. Next, slow your thoughts. It's all well and good to challenge your thoughts, but if they're coming at you like baseballs from a pitching machine, you'll probably end up feeling too overwhelmed to be effective. I've come up with a list of mindfulness practices that help me find relief from my loud, persistent inner critic and monologue. These are the ones I've found most effective. Five minutes of traditional meditation or deep breathing. A five to 10 minute walk, focusing on my senses and experience of being in nature. A yoga class or five to 10 minutes of deep stretching synced with my breath. Listening to music on YouTube with subliminal messages for confidence. A repetitive, meditative, creative outlet like knitting or crocheting. Anything that gets me into the state of flow like dancing. Take a little time every day to clear your thoughts and it will be a lot easier to tame the fear-based voice that makes you feel bad about yourself. Next, change for the right reasons. With all this talk about accepting yourself and taming the voice that makes you feel unworthy and dependent on approval, you might assume that you should just never again strive for change. When I considered that possibility, I came up against a lot of internal resistance, but it wasn't because I felt like I needed to become someone else to be lovable. It was because I realized growth provides me with a sense of possibility and purpose. In much the same way that I wouldn't berate my child, if I had one, for having more to learn, I didn't want to have to motivate change from a place of self-disgust. Instead, I wanted to encourage myself to continually grow into a stronger, wiser version of me. I could regularly identify areas for improvement without concluding that I needed to change because I was somehow intrinsically flawed and broken. If you're not sure how to tell the difference between change rooted in shame and change rooted in self-love, ask yourself, do I want to make this change because I know I deserve the results or because I fear I'm not good enough unless I do this? Next, you'll want to take back your power from other people. I still want you to like me. I do. I want you to think I'm witty and funny and wise and interesting and worthy of your attention. But these days I focus a little more on you and a little less on your approval. I think back to times when you were witty and funny and wise and interesting, and I'm grateful that I get to give you my attention. And if you don't feel the same way about me, well, it can hurt. On days when I'm at my strongest, I'll acknowledge the pain and let it run through me. Then I'll remind myself that I can like me even if you don't. Because that's what happens when you learn to view yourself through a clearer and more compassionate lens. You start seeing how lovable and wonderful you really are. 
I am imperfect in so many ways. I've made more mistakes than I can remember or even count. I have struggles that I sometimes think I should have completely overcome, but I didn't. But I've been through a lot. I've been beaten down. And I have risen up every single time. I've kept playing my hand when it would have been easier to fold. I have learned and grown when it would have been easier to stagnate. I'm no longer ashamed of where I've been. I'm proud of the journey through it. I'm no longer ashamed of being imperfect. I'm proud that I'm brave enough to own it and humble enough to continually grow. This shift in perception has helped me accept that you may or may not accept me. I'm going to show you who I am in every moment when I find the strength and courage to be authentic. Maybe then you'll like me. And if you don't, it might hurt, but that's okay because I'm going to love myself through it. I'm sure you can understand why I chose to share that article. I thought it was so beautifully written and can really take us within ourselves and touch that place that longs for approval. There's a spiritual teacher that I like very much, and her name is Byron Katie. And she said something that I think is really appropriate here. It's a quote, and she says, it's not your job to like me. It's mine. And I think that's something incredibly powerful to keep in mind if you have been resonating with what I've shared here about approval addiction. We can try, but it is impossible to outsource our duty to love and honor ourselves to other people. Sure, we can find people in our lives who say amazing things to us and reaffirm their love for us and admiration for us, that's a beautiful thing, right? I have so many people in my life that are incredible cheerleaders. But the problem is, is that if you don't intrinsically believe that these things are true, if you don't intrinsically love yourself and believe you are worthy of love and acceptance and approval even as the flawed human being that you are, if you don't believe that deep down in your guts, then nothing anyone can do or say to try to prove to you that that's the case will sink in for any longer than maybe a few minutes or a day or so. If you remember the time maybe that you got that approval you were so dying for from someone else, if you think about it, It really is like a drug addiction because you're only high off of that supply for a little bit of time until you need more. Why? Because you're not intrinsically believing that stuff. So it's something to keep in mind. It's not your job to like me. It's mine. It is your job to love you. Until we accept and approve of ourselves, no amount of approval from other people or position in life is going to keep us permanently secure. The outside approval that we are seeking becomes this addiction. We work to get approval and it feels good for a little bit. And then we find that we need more and more and more and more of it. True freedom will never really come for you until you realize 
that you don't need to struggle to get from other people what you were already intrinsically born with. You were born. It is your birthright to be a being of love, acceptance, approval, security, worth, and value. You've just been outsourcing this to other people, but it must come from within. And we can gain or buy friends by letting them control us, but we have to keep these friends the same way that we got them. And after allowing people to control you to just keep that friendship going or that partnership or that job, whatever it may be, eventually we get tired of having no freedom. And being lonely is actually better than being manipulated and controlled or not living our truth. When you struggle with approval addiction, it's important to keep in mind that when you're entering a new relationship, be really careful how you get started with things. What you allow in the beginning of a relationship, a friendship, or even a working relationship with someone is going to be what's expected throughout your association with that person. So the behavior you tolerate at the beginning of a relationship should be behavior that you can be happy with permanently. Let people know by your actions that even though you would like their approval, you can live without it. Respect other people, but also let them know that you expect them to respect you too. The performance you put on or the masks you might wear in the beginning of a relationship or a job or something like that is going to be what people expect from you. And the thing is about wearing masks and not being true to ourselves and saying yes when we really mean no and all of these things, this house of cards that we're building eventually, as I mentioned before, can lead to feeling really burnt out put upon, passive aggressive, and resentful. And this burnout from keeping up all of these masks and saying yes when you really mean no, this will make you angry because deep down you recognized that being drained and exhausted and not living your truth is not normal. And so what happens is we become angry with the people that we perceive to be pressuring us or not allowing us to do what we want to do, for example, when in reality, we allow ourselves to be pressured. We created this environment. Now, when you're addicted to earning the approval of other people by any means necessary, you inadvertently create a self-imposed emotional prison. And while you desperately want to belong and feel secure in relationships, the anxiety of fitting in robs you of all of your personal power. Approval addiction is very real and it's not just about people-pleasing. People-pleasing is one kind of behavior that manifests as a result of being addicted to approval, but there are other ways. And some people seek approval by constantly trying to please others, but others can try to get approval by seeking out achievement and being the best at everything. And these types of people are performers. 
other types of approval addicts focus more on trying to win people over by blending in. These types of people might be called chameleons, and others still would rather just not be seen at all to avoid any kind of rejection. So there's many, many different ways that approval addiction can play out. I want to finish up by talking about why you should free yourself from the expectation of approval, why it's so important, and the sacrifices and consequences that you might be facing in your life if you do not take this seriously and make it a concerted effort in your day-to-day to start working through some of these issues. The first thing to focus on is that by centering your life around the approval of other people is that you're giving someone else power over you. While you might crave approval, it's important to remember that other people's opinions are just that, someone's highly subjective personal opinion. And their input may not be neutral. Their opinions about you or your work, if it's not objective, might be influenced by personal biases or circumstances that have nothing to do with you. So this might manifest in behavior or opinions that are more of a reflection of what's going on in their world than an objective portrait of you. How often in your life have you completely changed the way that you wear your hair or a, something that you loved that was an item in your wardrobe, but one person said one thing about it and it's like you could never look at it the same way again? Maybe you never really thought about your nose but someone made one comment to you in junior high and forevermore you have obsessively fixated on your nose and wonder what other people are thinking about it, right? This is something to keep in mind and it can really devastate your attempts at building genuine self-esteem. So another thing is when you're expecting approval from others and you are circulating your life around this and your identity is that you're making your happiness dependent on external output. Now, this might sound like a cliche, but your happiness really should, in general, come from within. And the only person who has control over that happiness is you. So you shouldn't be overly dependent on external praise or approval to feel good about yourself. You need to focus more on cultivating internal standards for yourself, So writing down and doing the exercise of figuring out what your values are and holding yourself accountable to those. And then you can celebrate your achievements from a place of intentional choice. So something else that approval addiction can cause in our life and why we should free ourselves from it is that a constant need for approval disconnects us from listening to our intuition. And as long-term listeners of the podcast know, I have truly come to believe that most of our psychological suffering comes from this severing of the connection between us and our gut feelings, our intuition. Ultimately, you are your best advocate. You are your own best judge. You, and only you, know what quality of work you are capable of putting out. Your decisions are best left to yourself and listening to your own gut feelings when thinking of how to proceed. 
And of course, it's perfectly okay to ask for help when you need a fresh perspective on something, but you need to be careful to not let that support become a crutch. When you listen to your intuition, you're also practicing a deep trust within yourself. I'm reading The Artist's Way by Julia Cameron, and she talks about how important it is when creative projects are in their infancy stage. Like when you're just starting on something, maybe it's a book idea, maybe it's a song, right? You really should hesitate to show it to people too early because when something's just starting to get born within you, some creative endeavor, it's very sensitive to criticism. And if you know yourself to be someone who would completely throw a project away, if it received one bit of harsh criticism, then you should protect those creative projects and not show them out into the world, not try to ask people's opinions on them too early. And if you do, you want to go to someone who you know to be a very open-minded person who's going to be encouraging to you. So you might be wondering at this point, how in the hell can I break free from this need for external approval? I'm going to give you a few ideas, but as I always say, take what resonates here and leave the rest. And maybe you can switch up some of these ideas to fit you and your own needs. These are just some places for you to get started. So first you can get curious about the root cause of your desire for approval. We always have to get to the root. If you find yourself relying on the approval to feel good about yourself, then it's time to do some serious self-reflection. And I, the podcast host here, cannot do that for you. You have to ask yourself where this desire comes from. Have you always sought out approval? Is there a ritual or process that you can adopt that will allow you to break out of this cycle? This is a great time to sit down with a notebook and do some serious thinking and journaling and reflecting about the relationship between your inner critic, that that negative, harsh inner monologue, and other people around you. Something else you can do is focus on connecting with your intuition. If you've become dependent on receiving feedback from others, it likely means that you've slowly become disconnected from your internal feedback mechanism, which we like to call your gut feeling, your intuition. So for example, after a presentation or some kind of way that you're putting yourself out there for, I'm just using the example of maybe a presentation at work, right? Immediately observe how you're feeling. Do you feel confident, excited? Do you feel like you could have performed stronger? Build a strong bridge to your instincts through honest reflection and committed action. So now is the time to start cultivating your intuitive sense. And it's likely a more accurate representation of how you're performing than any external commentary. So try to practice this week of after you've done something, shared something, accomplished something, even if it's small, go within and try to find an inner sense of self-congratulation and see how that feels, how good it feels to give that to yourself rather than seeking how it should feel from outside of you. Now, I have a series called The Hero's Journey, which is a 21-episode long journey through the major arcana of the tarot as well as 
mysticism and myth and then reflection and visualization exercises that is a means of coming back into a deeper connection with your intuition. And if you're interested in unlocking those episodes, you'll need to become a premium submarine and you can read more about how to do that by clicking the link in the episode description. So something else you can do is take inventory of your strengths and skills. So in a notebook or maybe in the notes app on your iPhone, make a list of your skills and capabilities that you're good at and that you're proud of. What sets you apart from others? When and how do you think that you shine the most? By acknowledging your strengths, this will help you develop confidence without external validation. You won't need a partner, a friend, or a coworker to tell you how great you are because you know this already. Something else you can try is using objective feedback to grow and dismiss subjective opinions. Remember that as a human being, you are always going to be a work in progress. You are never going to be a finished project. Throw that idea out the window. You're never going to be healed, cured, finished. I truly believe that focusing on that finish line, that non-existent finish line as human beings is what keeps a lot of us really stuck. We think if only we'll get to this point, then I'll stop being a flawed human being. Newsflash, you will never stop making mistakes. You're always going to feel like there's something that you can improve. That's just part of being a human. Also part of being a human is that we're going to receive feedback, opinions, criticisms, and thoughts from other imperfect humans. And this is why it's really important to understand the difference between objective and subjective feedback, right? So objective feedback is specific, measurable, and purposeful, and it can be extremely helpful for your growth. So I'll use an example of myself for this podcast, right? People have the ability to write reviews on my podcast and reviews of my work, especially this work, because it's so personal to me. It's not like I'm doing like a knitting podcast, which by the way, shout out to any knitting podcast, no shade. I'm just saying I'm literally putting my deepest thoughts and feelings and insecurities out there into the world. And when I receive negative reviews, it can really challenge my approval addiction. It's actually been a really good growth opportunity for me. But I've had to really focus on understanding the difference between objective and subjective feedback. So for example, someone might give me a three-star review on Apple Podcasts and write something like, hey, you interrupted that guest too much, so it was distracting, or the audio quality is really poor on the first 12 episodes, but I like the work, da-da-da, right? To me, that's objective feedback. It's specific, measurable, and purposeful. This person thought it was difficult for them to focus on what a guest might have had to say because I interrupted, or they are recommending that I improve the audio quality. These are great suggestions. And I have received reviews about that early on. So one of the hardest things I had to do is learning how to interview people because I get so excited about what I want to share and ask them that you can have a tendency to interrupt people. Interviewing podcast guests is definitely an art form that I've had to learn. Now, on the other hand, I've received 
a few one-star reviews and people might say something like, you share your opinions way too much, or you say this podcast is about BPD, but it's not really about BPD. And I hate this podcast, right? (laughs) And subjective feedback is influenced by personal feelings, tastes, or opinions. Now it doesn't mean that it doesn't have any value, but those types of reviews that I received, while they hurt me so much in the beginning, they don't hurt me as much anymore because I know that it says more about the person that's writing the feedback than it says about me or my work. So for example, I can receive those reviews where it's like, this podcast, you have way too, you're sharing your opinions way too much. And in my mind, I go, well, this is my podcast where I share my thoughts my opinions and my feelings. And I'm okay with that because that's why a lot of the listeners come here is to understand what I think from a pure support perspective, right? So now understanding what objective and subjective feedback is through that example in my own life, I hope that you can take that and apply that to your life too. Next time you receive a bit of feedback, criticism, or someone says something to you, try to take the objective feedback from it and then understand the parts that might be subjective feedback. Ask yourself, is there anything actionable that I can take from this that would be valuable to further improve myself, the outcomes of my work, etc. But then what are the things that I just need to leave? What are the things that says more about the person that's giving the feedback and the place they're in and their mind in that moment and maybe the emotional space they're in that doesn't serve me? So really try to start unpacking that in your own life. It's going to be really, really powerful. Now, the last thing you can do is don't expect any approval. And then when you do receive approval, you can just see this as a bonus. So instead of expecting approval and fighting for it, initiate a personal reflection process as a substitute. So maybe start a journal where you reflect regularly on your goals and accomplishments and feelings surrounding them. And if you really need feedback from someone else, you can ask them directly. I'm going to leave you with some questions for you to reflect on this week. Feel free to pause the podcast here and write them down in a notes app on your phone or in a journal so that you can reflect and respond and write on these. I really encourage you to do that. So the first question is, what is the root cause of my desire for approval? What are the objective actions I can take to further improve my skills or expertise if I'm not satisfied with the quality of my work or maybe even with the quality of who I show up as as an individual? What is the opportunity for me if I would not expect any approval and appreciate it as simply just a bonus when I received it? How can I show up as my own cheerleader and celebrate the effort that I've put in? I hope that this was helpful for you. I can't wait to hear about how this episode impacts people that might be struggling with approval addiction. I think this is a concept that doesn't get spoken about as much. You hear a lot about codependency, but not this intrinsic need 
of approval that feels just like you need the drug. (laughs) So I want to thank Beryl for her voicemail that inspired this episode. And I encourage you, my beautiful listener, to reflect on this. And remember that you are an imperfect human being, just like the rest of us are. Some people are better at putting on a performance that they aren't imperfect, but the reality is is that those masks take a lot of work to maintain, and underneath every single personality mask is a flawed, imperfect human just doing their best, someone who's going to make mistakes, someone who has insecurities, all of it. So I ask you to free yourself from the need to obsessively pursue the approval of other people. Understand that rejection is just a part of life. And sometimes rejection can be the best thing for us. Because as is so often said, when one door closes, another one opens. And remember that by saying yes to something, you're sometimes saying no to yourself. And by saying no to something, sometimes you are saying yes to yourself. And by saying yes to yourself, keeping your own word to yourself, that's the most powerful thing that you can do. And while many of us have struggled with abandonment and fear it, what we don't know is that by languishing in the depths of approval addiction, It is us committing self-abandonment. The person that is desperate for your approval is you. All right, everyone, it's that time of the episode where I give you a preview of my private second podcast, My Stupid Walk for My Stupid Mental Health. This podcast is available exclusively to my premium submarines. You can unlock access to all of the last Stupid Walk for My Stupid Mental Health episodes. There are about 14 up to this point of recording. And by becoming a premium submarine, you also unlock up over 110 hours of back from the borderline bonus content. This includes bonus additional episodes and archive episodes from when I very first started the podcast. So if that sounds interesting and exciting to you, you can sign up to become a premium submarine by clicking the link in the episode description. But without further ado, here is the stupid walk for my stupid mental health number 15. What's up everyone? We are on our stupid walk. And we're actually back on our real outside walk with me and Cody. And it's like the perfect weather. It feels like Seattle weather, you know, where it's just crisp and it's recently rained. So it smells really good and I'm out in nature. So what could be better? So I wanted to talk about itchy feet today. This is inspired by an email from a premium submarine and I'll read the actual email 
at the end of this walk, when we get back to my desk and when I take a couple of other questions from listeners via email and voicemail. But this subject struck me to the point where I felt like I wanted to discuss it more at length on my walk. So basically the gist of this listener email was that and who requested to remain anonymous. And by the way, if you have a voicemail or email and you would like me to, well, I guess if you're sending a voicemail, it's your voice. So, but if you send me an email and you would prefer to remain anonymous and ask me to not include your name, you can always do that. But I digress. This listener sent me an email and she basically explained that she's been with her partner for a really long time. I think it's been, I think it's four years. To me, that's a really long relationship, especially given that this listener um, is younger. I believe she's in her mid 20s. And so a four year relationship in your mid 20s is a very long, like, think about it. You know, if you're with someone when you're like, start dating when you're 18 and you're together all the way up until you're 21. Those are like very formative years where if you weren't in a relationship, you might be, (laughs) this phrase, I think it's the funniest phrase, sowing your wild oats, right? You know, just like experiencing different people. And in your 20s, that's when you're supposed to experiment because I'm not saying that if you find the love of your life and there aren't relationships out there where people meet when they're, in their early 20s or late teens, and then they have a happy and fulfilled life. I'm not saying that, but I do think there's a lot of examples, at least in my own life, especially growing up in Wyoming. I know a lot of people that got married to people they even knew in high school and stayed together long-term and maybe had like, come on, Cody. Cody doesn't like walking over, um, bodies of water and by that I mean a tiny stream (laughs) she's like bitch no I'm not getting my paws wet in this anyway these people that you know marry their high school sweethearts or something I have experienced this time and time again in close relationships in my own life where these people have maybe even up to three kids by the time before they're even 30 and so they are forced directly into this next phase of their life, maybe before really getting to experience the previous phase. And just know I'm speaking broadly in generalizations and I'm not saying there aren't exceptions to this because life is complicated. But what I see is that people have this like kind of quarter life crisis and it happens at various times because say for instance, you got married when you were 17, had three kids and then at like 25 you're going like what the fuck it's almost like you wake up to the shackles you've created for yourself and I'm not calling children shackles but I'm saying that you made really permanent decisions at a very uh, tender stage of your development and now you feel like "Uh uh-oh and then the shame comes right because I believe that normally when someone has a child like they love that child no matter what but I've run across a lot of women in my life that say like I love my children And I feel so guilty that I resent my children at the same time because they feel like shackles. And I think that this happens because of people 
kind of forcing themselves into a different phase, like the marriage phase or the long-term relationship phase and not allowing themselves to experience the world and other people. And that doesn't mean sleeping around. It just means like figuring out who the fuck you are and spending enough time to where when you move to the next phase, you feel like you got to live what you needed to live. And that looks different for everybody. Um, but you will know, and your body will let you know, just how we talk about symptoms of saviors, your body and your mind will let you know if you are in a life where you're longing to do something else, or it will remind you that you maybe haven't taken certain steps in your developmental journey. I believe this. So needless to say, I think that that's a phenomenon that is, is worth talking about is, you know, forcing ourselves into this, you know, tied down lifestyle really early on. I myself got married when I was 23 years old, right? No way was I ready for that. And after I got married, I definitely experienced myself like going out and partying and doing what 23 year olds do. And then just feeling still like I wanted to talk to other people and like, Ooh, did I make the right decision? Right? Because I was still, I just wasn't ready for that level of commitment yet, even though I so deeply loved the person I was with at the time. And I think this is really common and I don't know quite what to do about it, but I just think a lot of people instead do they just feel shitty and like they're the only one experiencing this when I think it's a very common thing. And yet again, just like everything else in this podcast, we feel crazy and like we're fucked up and something's wrong with us when in reality, it's just a very universal experience. So back to this listener's email, and I've had a pretty close relationship with this particular listener because she started following the podcast really, really early on. And, um, And there's just a few of you that like from very day one that have kind of, we we were in touch more uh, closely in the beginning of the podcast days because I could be. And now that's just not possible anymore because it's grown and I'm grateful for that growth. But it also means that, you know, I'm not able to have as much one-to-one interaction, but I'm blessed to have had a little bit of one-to-one interaction with this listener and She's deeply on a path to find herself. She went through really dark times with her emotional journey. And she's been with this person for four years. I think I'm getting that right. And they've been long distance for that time. Another thing about long distance relationships, I feel like many of us who are struggle deeply with emotion dysregulation and like self-worth issues, we find comfort in long distance relationships. We would never admit that to ourselves. And it's almost like, well, I wish we lived closer. You know, by the way, I'm not saying that this is what this listener, this is her experience because I'm absolutely talking about myself. This is how I felt. If someone would have said like, are you just trying to have long distance relationships? I would have been like, no, (laughs) it just so happens that he lives across the ocean and I'm pining for him and we FaceTime every single second of the day, right? And I can't wait till we can visit each other next, right? But as I've reflected, I realized that I I found myself attracted to long distance relationships or other relationships that had like big barriers, like maybe that person was married or maybe that person was engaged or maybe that person was just completely and very obviously telling me, I don't want commitment. I don't believe it. And I felt like I could be the one that they would commit to. I always like placed these 
huge challenging barriers between me and a stable relationship. And looking back on it now, that was like a self-protective measure. I think I was scared of what actual intimacy was. I was scared of someone actually just seeing me at all times of the day, right? And long distance was a way where I could manage this allure where I could manage how this person perceived me a lot better when I would visit them. I could be completely on the whole time that we were visiting. And then oftentimes when I'd go back home, I would like collapse because the effort of that performance for the entire time. I'm not saying I wasn't being completely myself or not being completely myself because I was, but it was like I could perform intimacy. I could perform being the perfect girlfriend. It could be magical and exciting. And to me, it was just another way that I of chaos in my life. I deemed what real love actually looks like is shocking for most of us who struggle with emotion dysregulation. Why this is, is because real love, real long-term committed partnership can seem to those of us who've been addicted to drama and passion and just chaos, it can feel like boredom to us. And so we get itchy feet. And that's why I'm going to title this podcast, This Stupid Walk, Itchy Feet, because it's a common occurrence. And if you're not familiar with that phrase, I never know because I have so many, we have grown so much as a community and we have people from all over the world. (laughs) I'll need David from Saarbrücken to tell us if itchy feet is a thing in Germany. Anyone else? Uh, from other parts of the world you'll have to comment on this post if I when I post it in patreon if itchy feet is a thing where you're from but itchy feet basically just means like you start to if you think about when your feet itch right it's very fucking uncomfortable but it's not like you're dying right but it's something that you can't ignore and that's what I mean in relationships I also call it like the ick right like You get the ick when, this is another thing, like, does the ick exist in other countries? You get the ick when, like, you kind of have this, maybe the person that you're with does one thing. This is another thing of splitting, I think. The ick is kind of splitting as well. They do one thing, and you're like, nope. You could have been obsessed with them. Completely. You could have been completely fucking obsessed with them. And then they do one thing, and it's over. So, for example, I'm listening, uh, watching one of my when I say this is the guiltiest guilty pleasure because this show is such trash I'm watching right now the newest season of Married at First Sight Australia now Married at First Sight the Australia version is the only version worth watching I don't know what but like Australians know how to fucking do reality tv and by that I mean imagine if like a Hollywood film producer produced this like it's so overproduced but they do it so well the drama is there and like I can't stop watching it I'm just obsessed And when I find the seasons, there's like 30 episodes of each season. It's kind of like Love Island that way. And I'm sure it's like a national fucking event in Australia. People must be so into it. And I'm kind of jealous that I can't take part in this cultural phenomenon. (laughs) But in any case, on the most recent episode that I watched last night, there is this guy, right? And he's getting married at first sight. And he's like this quirky, like rock and roll kind of guy. He has tattoos, right? And then the girl that he's getting married at first sight to. By the way, for those of you who don't know, Married at First Sight is this trashy, horrible reality show where they force people into this traumatizing environment, as with all reality shows, and they 
experts, quote unquote, who are relationship experts, match these people sight unseen and these people agree to come on the show and get married at first sight, right? It's kind of like love is blind. By the way, I've toyed with the idea of doing like YouTube reaction videos to some of these dating shows. I, I, cause when Zaz and I are watching it, I'm like live commenting and Zaz is like, honestly, we should upload you live commenting on these. And I'm really, I'm really considering it because it would give me so much pleasure to do. And I have so many hot takes that I share when I'm watching these shows. But anyway, this guy was matched with this girl. When I tell you that the two of them, they looked perfect together. Like she loved old cars. She had tattoos. She was such a beautiful free spirit. And like, I just loved this girl. And I thought, oh, they're going to love each other. Right. And so they see each other for the first time at the aisle. This guy is like, they go to cut scenes of him talking about her. And he's like, I, I love her. She's so hot. I think he said she's so hot like 70 times. So again, there was like this instant chemistry. And in his earliest interviews, this guy had said the one thing that like really turned him off about girls were girls that were into like astrology and crystals. And sure enough, in true reality TV fashion, (laughs) um, this girl, like when they're at their wedding, he's been obsessed with her this whole time. And they're, they're hitting it off. They have so much in common. And then all of a sudden, he, she basically says, so, like, when were you born? And I was like, uh-oh. <laughs> and he said when he was born, I think he said July. Don't kill me, people who are into astrology, because I might fuck this up. Because um, I just, I know, I, I'm totally down to read about astrology, but sometimes I don't know exactly the signs for each month. I know them vaguely. But I'm pretty sure he said he was born in July, and that makes him a cancer. And he said, I'm July. And she goes, oh, so you're a cancer. Interesting. And then immediately you could see in his face, just you could watch the switch. You could watch the split happen. It was pretty miraculous. And, and you can't fake this shit, you know? And his face just completely fell. And then, of course, they cut, you know, to an interview with him. And long story short, he just was done with her at this point. It was too, it, he couldn't cope with it. He completely made a, a, a whole character judgment about this girl because she asked him about astrology and she said that she was into astrology. Now, that's what I'm talking about, right? I also think this is what happens. We get addicted to the chaos and we love love. But then the moment that we, number one, we split on people so we don't even give them a chance. So that can be like with long distance relationships that happened with me, right? Where I would find myself in these long distance relationships and I'd be addicted to the passion and the love and the like the longing of when we were going to see each other. And you know, this is like the time and we got, we, it has to be said people are sending nudes to each other. Right. And the, and sending nudes and sexting and like, and even if you're not doing that, just building up the anticipation, that's honestly what we're after half the time when we start long-term relationships in a long distance manner. Right. And I'm not saying it can't turn into something very real, but I'm saying I think that's the first point of attraction when we knowingly walk into something because being long distance for four plus years, now that's a long fucking time, right? And here's my theory. So I I really need to continue. I'm I'm going all over the place because I have so much to say. So that's my theory on that. I think that we create long distance relationships or these relationships that have obstacles that seem not overcomable. That's not a word, but just stay with me because 
it helps us. We know that we deep down subconsciously, we know we're not ready for actual long-term everyday kind of like the boring all right everyone that is the end of the preview for this week's my stupid walk for my stupid mental health if you want to unlock the full version of this episode as well as those 110 plus hours of bonus content you will need to become a premium submarine and you can do that by clicking the link in the episode description now there are other ways to support this podcast without subscribing you can share it with a friend you can follow me on instagram at backfromtheborderline.com you can rate and review the podcast all of those things are incredibly supportive to my work as well so i hope you enjoyed today's episode i'm sending a huge virtual hug from me to you and i'll see you right back here next tuesday love you lots Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Back from the Borderline. If you'd like to receive my monthly written recovery musings via Substack directly to your inbox, send me a voicemail, join the Patreon community, or check out my Amazon booklist recommendations, visit backfromtheborderline.com and click to access my link tree.